Thanks, guys. Good evening. My name is John. All right. That was great. Let's try that again. Okay. I, I've only been in Iowa for six weeks, and people are nice there, but don't ruin Wisconsin for me. Let's try this again. Good evening. Hi. Hi. All right. There we go. All right. My name's John. How did I get here? Uh, that's weird. Um, weird. Weird story. I think Rob and Ronnie were looking for someone to speak at Fall Retreat that looked similar to them, and they couldn't find anyone, so then they got the opposite. So it's me. Um, but really, like, if we want to do the whole, let's, who had the weirdest year, and that's not cool, but let's just compare. Like, this has been a weird year. So for the last 11 years, I've lived in China. Um, some of you, if you were at the SALT retreat in Des Moines in February, you might have seen I was there at the retreat. The plan was to go back to China after that, but yeah, COVID. And so 35 moves later, um, th just waiting and waiting, we rolled into Ames in August. There were times during the year where we would be walking around as a family and I would see someone with a Nike t-shirt that says, just keep moving. You know what I'm talking about? I would literally want to punch them. Like emotionally, I would just start to flood. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I move one more time, I'll, yeah. And then they didn't know and I didn't punch them, so it's good. But um, so it's been a weird year. And as, and as Ronnie said, where God has had us planted, I'm getting a lot of feedback. I don't know if y'all, all right. Where God has had us for the last 11 years has been pl church planting in China among university campuses. And that's how we started working with SALT. I got to meet David Livingston probably about six years ago. Great story. Maybe I could tell it this weekend. And that's pretty much where I felt like God was going to have us for a long, long time. And then this happened. And so I'm really excited that it worked out, that he orchestrated all of COVID so that I could be with you. Um, and I, 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 joking aside, but I might, be, I might have been patient zero because I was in China and then I flew to Iowa in October of 2019. And then I went back to China. So jury's still out on that one, but we'll get back to you. Um, so we're talking about the kingdom of God. And I think the reason this excites me so much to get to spend tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening about it is that I grew up in the church. Like I was there every time the doors were open. And for me, basically church was where all your dreams came to die. <laughs> like it was lame. Like it was, you know, people were boring there. I was pretty sure that no one who was a Christian had sex. I didn't figure out how they had children, but I didn't think that far along. I wasn't that smart. And, and, and so like for me, the idea of Jesus was, okay, I'll be safe one day because I can go to heaven. But I pretty much know that if I'm gonna be happy, I'm gonna have to find it outside of him. At 21 though, God wrecked my life. And I realized that everything that I had been looking for was in Christ. And over the last 20 years, man, I've been wrestling with still trying to appreciate the words that he said, the things that he did, and the life that he's offered us. Because I think a lot of us, honestly, if we were explaining who Christ is and what he did, we think he came to save us so he could take us to heaven. But when you look at his life and you look at his words, you'll see that he came to change us so that we can live now in a kingdom that has power and grace and freedom so that we can be changed, so that we can join him in a mission and a life that's so much greater than we could have outside of him. So we're gonna kind of delve into that a little bit. And here's the question I want us to think about tonight. Do we take for granted what Christ has offered us? Are we drinking deeply enough of the grace of God that our so that our lives are being changed from the inside out in such a way that we marvel at who he is and we wanna join him in it. 
So let's look at this with me. Will you, we're going to do this all weekend, so it may not be, it may be weird now, it probably won't be weird tomorrow night, but will you stand for the reading of the word? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. If you have a Bible, that's in the New Testament. It's the third book in the New Testament, chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read a short part, passage in Luke 4, and then we're going to jump to Luke chapter 11. Why are you turning there? You're like, why are we standing? Man, they just did it for a long, long time because it was a way to show reverence to the word of God as we stand here and listen to what he has to say. So we'll be in, let's see, let's start in verse 16 of chapter 4. Great. And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Guys, that is a mic drop moment, if there's ever been one. So we're going to jump to chapter 11 before we get into explaining this. So turn over to chapter 11, if you don't mind, please, on your reading device. And we'll start in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, so you might be thinking, okay, this is weird. They brought in a missionary from China, and now they're talking about demons and Satan and Jesus. This is going to be a strange weekend. I hope it's a little strange. That'll be fun. Um, why would you want an ordinary weekend? So what, are we, what did we do? Luke 4, that passage we read at first, that's Jesus' like first public sermon. And that passage he read was from the book of Isaiah, and that, that passage he read from Isaiah was, Isaiah is this prophet that had lived 700 years before Jesus. It was one of the most famous promises in the Bible. The people of Israel had been waiting for someone to come and fulfill that, where it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of God has given me strength, anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. The liberty to those who are enslaved, sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's blessing upon you. And Jesus reads that and he says, oh, by the way, it's happening right now. 
So people are astonished. Some start to marvel, and others try to kill him immediately because they knew exactly what he was claiming, that he was the fulfillment of that. He was God in the flesh. So here in chapter 11, the, re the reason we read this is that you see that Jesus is not just talk. He's not just talking about bringing power and changing people's lives. He literally is demonstrating it. He's casting out this demon from this mute man, and people are watching him give freedom to people who are being oppressed, and some are marveling, and then some are just dumb. I mean, like, we know dumb. Like, you know, you, YouTube, you can spend hours watching dumb things happen. Like, I watched a guy, you know, run from a mountain lion the other day for seven minutes. Did you see that? And then at the end, he finally picked up the rock and threw it at the mountain lion. I'm like, what the heck? Literally, he's videoing it the whole time. I'm like, this is the generation we have now. He was willing to die in order to get the video. <laughs> it was so bad. Watch it later. Not right now. Don't watch it right now. Um, so, so some people are watching Jesus do this. and like, oh, he's working for the devil. He's doing that with the devil. And Jesus is like, do you even know how that works? That would be like if you were on a football team and Ronnie was on a football team. He dropped that in with the collarbone. You got that. And, and it would be like if you tried to score for the other team. Like, that would be bad, right? I had a guy on my high school football team. I didn't play in college, but in high school, we called him Wrong Way Ryan. You know why? He was on defense because, well, anyway, he wasn't the smartest kid. And he got a fumble, and he started to run the wrong way. So do you know what the other team did for him? They blocked for him. It was amazing. They're blocking for him, and Ryan doesn't even care. He's just running, and we're, we're like behind him, screaming at him, trying to get to him, but the other team is protecting him. And then when he gets in the end zone, he, he, he spikes it, thinks he scored a touchdown, but he gets sacked, and it's a safety. And he switched schools after that because you can never live that down. Like, wrong way, Ryan. Like, that, you don't do that, and Jesus is like, I'm not fighting against myself. This is God's power coming upon you. And what he's announcing is that I'm here to rescue people. So, so the whole thing about casting out demons is really just a picture of Jesus coming in to say, you know what, there's a strong man here, an enemy, and he hates my people, and he's enslaved them, and I've come to bring them out of that. I've come to set them free. This was another promise from Isaiah. The promise went like this. It said, um, can, the, can prey be taken from the mighty or captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I, God says, I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. So who can remove prey from a mighty tyrant? You know, like if Ronnie is beating me up, who can save me? Rob someone bigger, right? So if someone bigger comes along, they can rescue you. If a bear has got a fresh kill, you're not taking that kill from the bear. It needs to be a bigger grizzly bear. And Jesus is showing up saying, God is here to fight for his people, to contend for them, to bring justice, to bring peace, to rescue people. And look, there's a billion reasons to love Jesus, but here's just one more. Jesus shows up in this dumpster fire of a, of a world. It was one 2,000 years ago, and it can still be a dumpster fire today. And he doesn't say, you know what? These people are just screwed. You know what? They've done too many things. I don't want them. I'm going to start over and get some new people. He says, no, these are my people. And I will fight for them, and I will rescue them. He doesn't leave us in our darkness. He doesn't leave us in our chains. He's like, I came to get them because they were my people originally. They're not yours. And so that's what he's doing. So, like, Think about it for a moment. Like, where would you even be today, tonight, 
if this passage wasn't a reality. <laughs> like if Jesus hadn't come to fight for you and for me, like where would you be? What would your life look like? So here's how he fights for us. He doesn't just talk about it, but he does it. And, and so this passage also has a parallel a parallel passage in, Mark, in Matthew 12. And so you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it so you can hear the language in Matthew. But this is what he says in Matthew about it. He says, um, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? I like the word plunder. I think, you know, it sounds piratey. So he's like, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus says whatever he's coming to do or whatever he did then and whatever he's still doing today, he came in to bind the strong man, Satan, to plunder his house. In Luke 11, the language is he comes in and takes away his armor in order to divide his spoil. So let me tell you this. This is, this is not super complicated. If I can find the right passage again. Here we go. Um, we're the spoil. Satan has us. And Jesus comes in to bind him, to restrict him, and to set us free. So in order to do that, Jesus has to take away his weapons. So what are the weapons that the enemy uses to entrap us, to enslave us, to keep us from enjoying the freedom and the power of God? What are the weapons that he uses against us? And by the way, this is a small enough group that we can talk to each other, okay? So I know you have a mask on, but what are some of the ways that the enemy comes after our hearts? Non-rhetorical, sorry, if I didn't say that before. Doubt, that's a good one. That means not a good one, but that's a good answer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> doubt is a great one, right? Skepticism, doubt. Guilt, oh gosh. I feel guilty right now, you're just even saying that word. That's, that's it, guilt. What else? Temptation, for sure, yeah. Fear, oh man, I think fear is his favorite. So, so let, let's just talk about those for just a minute. Like Satan comes after us, and if you don't know how he fights against us and how Jesus has come to rip that away from him and take that armor from him, it's gonna be really hard for you to enter into the victory that God has given you. And so I'm, I'm just going to talk about a couple of them. The first is, is deception, um, lies. And, and, and the reason I'm starting there is because that's his name. The name Satan means your adversary. And the name, um, the name the devil means the slanderer. So there you go. He's an adversary who is a, who is a liar. And so in John chapter 8, when Jesus is interacting with people who are, who are rejecting him, he's saying, you know what? You're serving the father of lies, Satan. He says he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. And so here is, he may tell a billion different lies, but they're only, it's only one lie. And he's been whispering the same lie in people's hearts since the beginning of time. And it's this lie that he spoke to Adam and Eve and it's the lie that enters into our souls. That God's not for you that God isn't good, 
and that he doesn't want what's best for you, that God is trying to hold you back, that God wants to keep the training wheels on. He doesn't want you to be able to go and live and prosper. That's what he whispered to Adam and Eve, and that's what he continues to whisper over us, that God is not good, he's not for you, that he doesn't want what's best for you. And that was the ultimate lie, because if you believe that, then you're going to run from him, right? And, and so that lie hasn't changed. He's constantly promising, hey, if you want the best life, if you want real satisfaction, if you want to find meaning, you have to choose this pathway, and it's almost always full of half-truths. And so... Paul says in, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, that, that he's the God of this age and he blinds our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. So do you know what Jesus came to do? Man, he says, enough of that. I'm going to open my people's eyes to my love and I'm going to do it by nothing less than rescuing them from the domain of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light and I'm going to do it by adopting them. So do you know how God addresses the deception of the enemy? He does it by adopting us. He does it by changing our identity, by saying, these are my sons, these are my daughters. Because if the enemy whispers over you, oh, God's not for you, he's like, really? Unequivocally, you can see without any question, I'm for you because I didn't just bring you into my kingdom to be a slave. I brought you in to be a son or a daughter and to be an heir of everything I have. Like, do you get that? Like, I mean, adoption doesn't really blow you away if you think you're sitting there and you had everything already and you didn't need anything. But if you realize that you had run from everything that was good and you were living on the street and you had no hope and no people and someone comes and says, I want him, I want her to be my child, that changes you forever. And that's what Jesus came to do, to adopt us so that the lies of the enemy make no sense anymore when you think about it with this truth in front of you. So how amazing like, we've been changed by that adoption so that we don't have to listen to the lies. The second one, the second weapon is guilt. We're going to do guilt slash shame. They're on a continuum, and, and, and they work together. And, and you know, this, we've gotten better language in the church the last few years around this, and I'm very happy for that because often we have left out the word shame and just talked about guilt. So here's just a very simple um, re template for understanding the difference. Guilt is I did something wrong. I lied to you, I feel guilty. I know I lied. Um, guilt is associated with an action. I did the wrong thing, it starts to weigh on me. Shame is I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. So guilt's like, oh, I told a lie. Shame is I am a liar. That's all that I am. It defines me. Oh, I I'm, I'm broken, I'm hopeless. Shame starts to get in there. And the enemy literally weaponizes guilt and shame so that it becomes more and more a burden on our hearts and on our backs. Constantly reminding us how we fall short. Constantly reminding how we're not worthy and, 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 and that if people really knew what was going on inside your heart, they would run from you. They would push you away. So how does Jesus deal with shame and guilt? How does he deal with it? Well, in the book of Colossians, that's also in the New Testament. I'm just going to read it's chapter 2, but if you want to turn there, it's chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus hits it head on. He says this, and you, that's us, who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I'm not a Greek, I'm not like an English um, major or anything, but all means 
yeah, thanks. I appreciate that help. It means all. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So God, going back, he says, God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, so God doesn't ignore the fact that we sin against him and yet we run from him and that we, we deserve judgment. He knows there's a record of debt against us. He just cancels it. He, he cancels it out. And how does he do it? By nailing it to the cross. But look, here's the key part, verse 15. He disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the enemy. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So how does God deal with shame and guilt? See, the enemy uses shame and guilt to speak over us and say, you're not worthy, you're evil, like no one should love you. You're, if people knew you, they're going to push you away. And Jesus says, I know everything about him and her. I know everything about her. And I died for all of it. Not just the clean sins that we're willing to talk about, but the worst. Past, present, future, I know it. So whenever you bring a charge against them, I've already done it. I've already taken it away. They're mine. They're righteous now. They have honor in me now. And so, guys, this is an amazing truth. Like, I've spent basically the last 20 years going around the world, but mainly in China. And China is what we would call a traditional society with shame and honor at the base of every relationship. And I know in America, we're a lot more individualistic, and we tend to think more about personal achievement, but honor and shame are written into our hearts as well. And I've been in numerous conversations where you're talking to a college student in China and they're just explaining the weight of the burden of trying to please their family, of trying to get the great grades, trying to get a great job, of trying to get out from under the feeling that they owe everyone this great sense of debt and they never can pay it off. And then you start to talk about Jesus and what he did and how he removed shame and he says, anyone who puts his faith in me will never be put to shame if you believe on me. And it's amazing. They don't believe you at first because they said, this is too good to be true. But as the grace of God starts to transform their heart, it's so freeing. And guys, I want us to be free from the enemy's weaponizing of guilt and shame over us. Do you, I mean, yeah, I think we all want that. So we have deception, we have guilt and shame, and we have one more. And somebody out there said it, fear. Fear's the worst because he uses all those other things, the lies, the guilt, and the shame, and then he brings it all together in fear. And fear has been our response toward God ever since the garden. You remember the story? Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do? They run toward God? No, they immediately run away from God, and they're hiding in the bushes, and they're so filled with shame and fear. What do they do? They take leaves, and they try to cover themselves. Ever since that day, there's, just been, there's been this incredible sense of insecurity in our hearts that, 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 that there's something missing in us. And we're always trying to find safety and security in other things then to shore up that fear. So whether it be from family or money or power or sex or accomplishments, we just want to feel safe again. And it doesn't really work. It doesn't work so well. And I don't know if you're an Enneagram fan, but if you know Enneagram, then you can even get in there and see, oh, if you're, if you're an eight, here's your core fear. My wife is an eight, wing eight, and she, her core fear is being controlled. So if I tell her anything that maybe 
I think I want her to do, like, we're fighting. <laughs> like, you've got to suggest it and make her think it was her idea. Uh, and, and, you know, and so, like, fear just can rule our lives. And so here's a, here's a way, here's a grid to think about fear. Fear in the present often looks like fear of rejection and fear of failure. So in the present, the thing that can often, how fear can, can come out is in this great sense of rejection. There's a powerful feeling that almost everyone has but wants to hide from others. It is the feeling of being a fraud. The idea that we don't know what we are doing and people are going to realize it this one day. Like, I'm having it right now, a little bit, no. But we have it, like, oh my gosh, if people find out who I am, they're gonna reject me. And then it, co- it goes into failure, like, what if I'm not gonna finish on top? What if I'm not perfect? What if I don't complete my deadlines? And so that's the present, but then we move to the future and there's a great fear fear of what it holds in the future like am i am i if i'm single am i going to stay single do i want to stay single if i find the right person are they really the right person what if they find someone else that's the right person after we get married will i be able to provide for them like it just goes on and on will my kids be morons what will i do with that like like what do you do you think about the it just has so many different angles and avenues it can take as you start running through these stories that we can make up in our head and then there's the ultimate fear of death and no matter how many times a professor might try to say oh death is natural there's nothing natural about life ending and everything we love ceasing you're like wow this is an exciting talk yeah that that was it i'm gonna leave now um so fear (laughs) no like this is the reality like we don't talk about this stuff enough but and especially when you're young you don't want to talk about death i did a fall retreat a couple weeks ago and on the way into the retreat center, there was a cemetery. So I'm like, this is perfect because <laughs> everyone has to drive by it and park near it. And it's like, oh, there, there's a tombstone. There's a beginning date. There's an end date. And, and this is what the Bible says Jesus did with, about this. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, it says it like this. Since therefore the children, that's us again, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things flesh and blood that through death he might destroy there's that word again he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery it said jesus came and became a man and lived and died and was resurrected so that he could defeat the one who uses fear of death to enslave us It says, for surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So how does Jesus defeat fear, all these fears? Because he comes in and he's the only one who said, I created life. And then he goes right into death and he comes out on the other side of death stronger. He swallows it up and he says, if you trust me, the sting of death one day will be swallowed up. I came to remove it so that you are no longer governed by fear, but my love over you moved you and and transformed you. So, man, deceit, guilt and shame and fear, these are weapons that the enemy uses over the people of God. And Jesus says, I came to strip those from him so that we could be free, free, so that we could live differently. Imagine this, that you've been bullied and beat up all your life, and then all of a sudden your new best friend who moves to town 
is the biggest, strongest, wisest, kindest person in town. Anyone who bullies you before is not coming near you. This is the king we serve. He's for us. He's with us. And he says, I came to do this for my people, to divide, the, to pull them out of the darkness and to bring them into my light, to bring them into my kingdom. So here's the question as we kind of transition to what does this mean and how do we work this into our life? If this is what Jesus said he did, why does it feel so untrue at times? Maybe it felt untrue in 2019, but in 2020, it may even feel a lot more untrue. You don't just live outside the cave, but what do you do? You go back in. You go back into the darkness. You go back in to tell people there's a light, there's a truth, there's a freedom. Come with me. And Jesus has done that and so much more. He's invited us to be free to live in his kingdom, but then to go back into the darkness to set other people free through the same gospel that changed us. But we will not be willing to do that with any passion or any integrity or authenticity unless we truly believe that Jesus has come and he's the king that set us free. If we're struggling with that, if we don't believe it to be true, we're certainly not going to call people to that kind of freedom. Or if we're not amazed at what he's done for us, we're certainly not going to live with any kind of passion or commitment to that. So, so what happens? Like, What can start to take place in our life so that this isn't just something we talk about in our mind and we think about, but that we start to love we start to love this truth. We start to love this grace that Christ has come to offer us. And I think to love this grace, to love this freedom, to love this mission that Christ has put over us, you have to think about grace more deeply. And, and, and so here's a way that you can think about grace in a very simple way. Grace is something that is both undeserved and unobligated. Okay? So grace is an undeserved gift because you and I don't deserve it. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And he doesn't, so he does, we don't deserve his son. We don't deserve freedom. We don't deserve that forgiveness. It's undeserved, but it's also, we have it, we receive it from an unobligated giver. Like God isn't obligated to give us his son. Do you, you have to put both of those together. It's both, it's undeserved and it's unobligated. And unless you do that, you will not start to be transformed by it. Like I have two kids a 10-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son, like, the other day we were having a, 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 a D group, and I'm sitting with my group, and I look over, and I see my daughter, who's, you know, she's just sitting on top of my son, just wailing on him. I mean, just beating him down. Like, there's only three years difference, but she hit her growth spurt, and she's, like, twice his size, and she loves to just destroy him. So my group is, like, trying to concentrate and trying not to, you know, trying to ignore that, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. So, Zoe, stop smashing your brother's face in the ground right so this goes on like that night she did not deserve a lot of things like she didn't deserve a lot of love she didn't deserve a lot of affirmation but by law i was obligated to give her dinner and put her in the house so she slept you know what i'm saying like i was obligated legally to let her be there she didn't deserve it but god is not obligated nor are we deserving to receive what he gives us and I think what happens are, look, I'm going to simplify because that's the only way you can do a talk in this amount of time. When it comes to appreciating what God's done, I think there's some of us in this room that are tr totally afraid. And there's some of us that are just full of pride still, even though I just talked about setting us free from pride and fear, basically. And the people that are, still, that are afraid, I tend to see that we have two 
lower view of God's love. We have an underinflated view of ourselves and God's love, and we just can't imagine how the God of the universe, who's perfect and holy, could love me or love you. And it goes something like this. If he just, there's no way, like he knows me, he knows what's in here. He would never be able to change me. He wouldn't want to change me. He wouldn't want me. And, and, and on a good day, they're just self-deflated. Like they're just broken down. And on a bad day, they're, self, they're self-hating. They're overwhelmed by the brokenness inside them. And you cannot convince them that God loves them. So they have too low a view of God's love. They realize they don't deserve it, but they just can't see past that. And then on the other side, you have, sir, you have some people who have way too, a low, too low a view of God's holiness and way too high a view of their own self-worth. So that's where pride comes from they, when it manifests itself in the, in the way we normally think of, a, of an ego, a self-righteous ego. It usually means that you have way too low a view of God's holiness and you have way too high a view of yourself. And, and to be honest, I think if this person was sharing and if they were just telling you the way it is, when they look at the cross, they see something that God was obligated to do for them because of their intrinsic worth, because they weren't really that bad, or maybe because he just wanted us or he needed us in his kingdom. And it almost becomes a foregone conclusion that Jesus was going to die for you because he wanted you to be a part of his kingdom and he needed you. It almost becomes this idea that he really had to die on the cross for like six hours so those bad people for me maybe only need to hang for a few minutes because my sin's not that heinous. I'm not that broken. Man, when, when you're interaction with God tends to be based on what you've done lately and you're more religious and more pride-based, you can make up all the reasons in the world that God owes you things. You work hard, you're smart, you don't do bad stuff, you never really done anything terrible. You know what you start to do? You start to incredibly undervalue the cost of the cross for you. Because of this way too low of view of God's holiness, it's easy for you to lift up your eyes and be like, this is something that God had to do for me. There was a movie we watched a couple weeks ago with my kids, which always means it's Disney. And it was called The Queen of Catwee. It came out like three years ago. It was about these children who grew up in the slums in um, Kampala and Uganda. Um, And they grew up in abject poverty, like barely had a had a roof. I mean, when I say that it was like 10 and it would, the, t- the slums would flood all the time, their mom, their father had died. Their mom was just barely making ends meet so they could have one meal a day. And this man who was an engineer came into their community. And this is a true story. He started to teach them um, chess and he started to just teach them how to play and how to start respecting themselves and how to think strategically. And so there was this huge chess tournament in the city held at this really prestigious academy um, and he had to finagle and argue and fight to get them in it because no one thought they should be there. The kids, the slum kids didn't think they should be there. The academy certainly didn't want them there, but ended up, it, they got there. So they're sitting there in this great, nice academy, and they have, like, fried chicken on the table and mashed potatoes, and it's just food everywhere, and they can't believe themselves. And they're overwhelmed because they do not believe they deserve to be there. And then they stay in these dorm rooms with nice beds and sheets and blankets. And the teacher comes in in the morning, and you know where he finds them? They're all on the floor sleeping. Not one of them slept in the bed. Because they're like, I can't. Like, it's not for me. 
and, and, and then they're so sick and so nervous beforehand and so sure that they're not deserving of being there. They're throwing up and just terrified. And then switch over to the rich kids at the academy who, who have had everything given to them their entire life. They're underwhelmed by the whole tournament. They don't care to be there, not amazed by any of the food or any of the stuff, are sure they're going to win because they win at everything. And you get into the tournament and those kids from the slums just destroy them. I feel like that's quite a bit like how many of us can be when it comes to approaching Jesus. Some of us are absolutely sure that we could never, ever deserve what he wants to give us. And some of you are way over sure that he wants to give it to you because you deserve it. Either way, you won't be transformed. The grace of God will not change you until you sit there and marvel at the grand canyon of his love and the scandalous mercy that he pours over us that none of us deserve. And he's not obligated at all to give you, but he gives it to you freely. And at what cost? Let's read a story. It's in the Old Testament. It's the, last, it's the second to last book in the Bible. It's called Zechariah. So if you go to Matthew and just go back a couple chapters, you'll be there. This is crazy. I know the Old Testament is weird place, but let's just go there for a second. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 is one of my favorite stories because it brings this into, <laughs> yeah, it brings it into vivid color for us to see. Zechariah 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So just fun little Bible fact, Joshua in the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. Yeshua. It's the same Hebrew word we get Jesus. So Joshua, the word means God saves. Then he showed me Yeshua, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So this is the high priest, the one person, the one person in the entire nation of Israel who can go into the very presence of God one day out of the whole year, right? That's a big deal. There's a temple. It's the center of everything in Israel. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, the temple is up on this high hill, and everything about their entire nation and life, religious, civil, social, it all revolved around this temple. And in that temple, there was this holy of holy rooms where the Ark of the Covenant was, where one man could go one day out of the whole year, and he made a sacrifice there, and he confessed sins of the people there, and it was the most privileged job and so to do that job, to be that high priest, you, your whole life was built around being holy and being blameless and being purposeful. Like, that's the one thing you get to do. And they would talk about the whole week leading up to this one day. The people would just spend their whole life, their whole week praying and confessing sin and bathing and washing. And the day that they would go in, they would be dressed in new clothes, new robes that had never been worn before. So you were only in the purest of robes. And your conscience was supposed to be clean and clear. And you come in before the Lord to represent the entire nation. So this chapter is showing you this story of what it looks like for that one man who spends his entire life to be holy, to go before God. So Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. There's he, there he is again. And verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So let me just pause again. Sometimes, so Hebrew is a, is a language that uses euphemisms, like they don't tell you the bad things that are happening sometimes, they just use words that you have to figure out. The word filthy garments literally means his priestly robe was covered in crap. It was covered in human excrement. So, so why would you come before God covered in that? He's not. It's just showing you spiritually, even in his best day with all of his best work, this is what he looks like before God. He's covered in that. He's covered in unholiness. And look at what God says. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Remove them. And he said to him, behold, I've taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So let me just ask you this. If that's what Joshua the high priest looked like before God, what do you and I look like when we come before God? without help from the outside. Is he impressed? Is he overwhelmed? Is he underwhelmed? Is there a part of us that he doesn't know and then he's shocked when he sees it? If this is a picture of what the high priest looked like before God, this is the picture of what we will look like there. And God says, clean him up, give him new clothes, forgive him, and this is why it can happen. Look down in verse 8, he says, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, and for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so God says, this is how I'm doing it. One day I'm going to send this man who is a branch. That's always a reference to the descendant of David, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And he's going to come and take the sins of the land away in one day. So how are we changed by the grace of God so that we no longer underestimate his love nor do we underestimate his holiness we see what it costs god to change us nothing less than his son the way that we are set free from what has kept us in bondage the way that we're made whole the way that we're made pure the way that sin and deception and guilt and shame and fear melt away is when we see the love of god over us in christ jesus our king and we realize that he didn't, we don't deserve it and he wasn't obligated to do it, but he did it anyway. The reason that we can stand before him and he can say, put clean clothes on him and forgive him is not because God can just forget about our sin. That wouldn't make him a holy and just God. It's because he remembers, but he puts everything you and I owe, every bit of our guilt and shame on his son, Jesus, and crushes him with it. So when Jesus comes, 
He's the one that stands under the judgment of God. He's the one that pays all of that. He's the great high priest. And think about how Jesus even goes in. This whole picture in Luke 11 is that Jesus goes into the strong man's house and binds him and takes away the people who have been held captive. How does Jesus do that? Does he show up, flex his muscles, beat up Satan, and just show him that he's bigger and better? No. Jesus comes and defeats the enemy by being weak not being strong. He comes and defeats Satan, not with pride, but humility. He comes and defeats him, not by saying, serve me, but by serving us. This is, this is the irony of how he brings change and grace. He doesn't just show up and flex his muscles, he comes and dies. Because you and I will never be made whole unless something is broken. You can't, like when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, come to me and eat. You'll be satisfied, believe, and you'll never be thirsty. You can't eat bread unless you devour it. And he can't be what changes us unless he's broken down for us. That will lead you to enter into a life that will change you forever and ever. So there was a story, it's almost 30 years ago now. um, There was a flight that was taking off in Washington, D.C., and the pilots did not go through the checkups on on how to de-ice the plane, on how to prepare everything. They just rushed it and they took off and they only got about 300 feet in the air. And they ran into a bridge and crashed into the Potomac. It was in January, so it was freezing. Most of the flight died immediately upon crash. But, in, but it was about 5.30 in the afternoon on Capitol Hill, and people saw it, and there was a, the tail end of the plane was sticking out of the water, and people saw there were some survivors that were holding onto it. So they would jump into the water and try to swim out to save the people, but then they would have to be rescued because hypothermia would set in. It was too cold. So this air, helicopter comes in, and he lowers down a, a cable, and he rescues one man. And he comes back, he lowers down another cable, and there's, there's four or five people left, and he, he lower, and he gets the cable, and this one man named Arlen Williams takes the cable. Instead of attaching it to himself, he puts it on another survivor. Helicopter takes him over to the side and then comes back really quickly and they're afraid that the people are gonna die from the freezing cold. And so he lowers down two cables. This time, Arlen Williams again takes the cable. He hooks up another man. Then he hooks up another guy and a flight attendant who was just, her eyes were blind from the jet fuel and he lets them go over. And so four people have been saved and by the time the helicopter comes the next time, the tail has flipped over and he drowned. So when they did the autopsies, he was the only person in the entire plane who drowned. Everyone else had died from impact. Five people survived that day because one man gave his life for them. I guarantee you they were never the same. I guarantee you there weren't many days that they lived without thinking about what it cost them to be alive so that it gave them a new passion for why they were alive. And that's what Christ has come to do for us, guys. He's not just come to set us free from what enslaves us. He's come to set us free so that we may join him in the greatest mission in the entire universe to enter back into the darkness. And that grace that changed us is the same grace that people need and long for. There was one time when I was in China and we went out to a really remote village in the mountains and I had college students from a Chinese university with me and we were driving up in the mountains to go to this village to share the gospel. And we had been told it was about eight hours on the mountain road. And about four hours in, the guy who was going to be translating to this other dialect said, 
hey, by the way, these people are very violent and they don't like outsiders and they don't like talking about religion. Like, well, we're on the side of a mountain. We can't turn around and this is bad timing. Could you have told me four hours earlier? <laughs> he's, uh, well, you know, he's like, well, I would just encourage you to get there, be nice, and don't say anything about Jesus. I'm like, that sounds pretty stupid. But, you know, living sounds pretty good too. So we get there and we're sitting there with the elder of the village and we're eating walnuts and dipping them in honey and they're great. And I'm like, all right, here goes. He's got a knife. He's cutting the stuff, but I'm going to try. And so we start talking about Jesus and he's like, hey, we're not religious. Like, okay, well, he didn't knife me, but that was a pretty big rejection. So then I said, what happens when people die in your culture? And he lights up. He's like, oh, why do you want to know? I'm like, oh, I just want to know what happens when people die. He says, well, when people die, we have a three-day ceremony, and we start to kill sheep. So now I'm interested. I'm like, what do you do with the sheep? He says, well, we, we pour blood over the casket of the body. I said, well, what do you do that for? He said, because... We're trying to help the person move into the afterlife to be accepted. I'm like, well, there's one who's called the Lamb of God. And when John the Baptist saw him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world away. He's the one you've been looking for. So here you have this man in the middle of nowhere, China, and he was grasping for freedom grasping for freedom by killing animals and he hadn't heard about the one true lamb who can change his life forever that's what we have pray with me please father thank you for being a king who's good and trustworthy thank you for sending your very best your son to rescue us thank you for not leaving us enslaved to fear and deception to guilt and shame Thank you for adopting us. I pray that we would marvel at the, just the idea of your grace, that it's both something we don't deserve and something you're not obligated to give us, but you give it to us anyway in your son. I pray that we tonight would drink more deeply from that grace and that it would change our hearts, that we would repent, Lord, where we are underwhelmed by your love, and we repent where we're underwhelmed by your holiness, and that, God, we would seek to live holy in your kingdom for your glory. And God, that he would even start to point us out toward people who don't even know about this grace and that our life would start to be a beacon of light to rescue others into this. 